So fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Eve. Uh, probably one of the most exciting times in the whole year for most people. Uh, anticipation, expectation, joy, uh, families being together. But I want us to stop and think a minute about the uh, first Christmas. Um, there were no Christmas lights. There were no Christmas carols being played. It wasn't a great uh, commercial enterprise that's going on. Um, it was pretty much business as usual, except that the government had stepped in and ordered a census of the entire Roman Empire. In those days, it was more than filling out a form. You had to actually physically go back to the place of your birth and register with the government. And so there was a lot of movement going on, a lot of traveling, congestion in the cities, people going and uh, small little villages all of a sudden mushrooming and becoming um, packed with generations that hadn't been there in years. And so every available space is taken up. Um, people, I imagine, because of the congestion and all the other things, a little short-tempered, um, trying to vie with one another for the available spaces to stay and live. So it wasn't a happy time for most people. But uh, it wasn't an option. It was a mandatory thing. And it was a violent time. So Joseph and Mary, Mary was very pregnant at the time, and they would have had to make a um, five to seven day journey um, walking, or if they uh, had the opportunity to ride on a donkey for five to seven days. Now, I don't know, you ladies know a whole lot more about it than us men, but that doesn't seem to be a very comfortable ride, much less a walk. Five to seven days, camping out. Um, you'd have lots of people around, which sometimes is not good when you're not well. So those are the kinds of things that were going on. Um, this was just a, a peasant woman from on the edges of the land of Israel, up along the border, a border town, who was making a way down just south of the capital city. Uh, a peasant woman and um, husband trying to get there like everybody else. They weren't the only ones that were in that shape. There were many. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that was going on. No fanfare, no hoopla. Um, just ordinary things. Those people would have been ignored or maybe a few people had pity or sympathy on them because of the hardship of the drive or the, the journey. Uh, we don't know. But we know when they got to the hotel, there was no room. And so out of kindness, uh, the landlord let them use the stable. And so it was that kind of a thing. Uh, not a nice hospital, not even a, a, a clean home birth. We don't know whether there was a midwife there or not. Um, but a barn is not a pleasant place to have children in. When we were, lived in Africa, the principal of our school um, was a black African, Moshe. He and his family lived on a hill outside of town in a, a community there. Uh, and one Christmas, they got a knock on the door. And there was this young couple, and the hospital wasn't that far away, but they couldn't make it. And she gave birth on his front yard. And so... Um, mother and child did fine and uh, we all went over and, <laughs> and 
saw the family and celebrated um, that kind of a birth on Christmas one year. It was an amazing thing, and it made me stop and think. A uh, little different than what the nice nativity scenes that we have. Uh, it wasn't that sanitized, and if you've ever been in a barn, you know what it's like. Uh, you've got the hay smells, but there are other smells as well. So they do the best they can with what they had. Now, the point of all this is what does this mean? Is it just another poor family doing the best they can with what they have, um, trying to survive and make the best of a bad situation? Is that what it was? Because there were other poor families that were struggling. Um, So the point of all of this, the Gospel of John wants us to understand the great miracle of Christmas. The good news is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what it meant. Now, God, because He was sending His Son, He did not want that to go unannounced. And so in the middle of the night on the fields outside of Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is just a small town. It was on the edges of Jerusalem. You could see Jerusalem from there. But um, it's not the big city. Little town outside. So the the fields and the pastures and all of that was, was just right there. And the shepherds were out there watching the sheep at night, guarding them like they always did, like they did every night. And in the darkest part of the night, There was a great light, and an angel from God came and told them what was going on. And then after he had told them, um, the veil was lifted for these shepherds, and they saw a great host. It's the word that's used for army. There's an army of angels standing there, and they are proclaiming, praising God for the birth. And as soon as they saw it and received that message, boom, Back to the darkness. Wow. Pretty impressive. They're the only ones who knew. The king didn't know. The Roman emperor surely didn't know. People in the village didn't know. People in Bethlehem didn't know. The shepherds knew because God chose to reveal it to them. And they went to see. And on that night... Um, that was the only visitors they had as far as we know, the shepherds. Uh, the, the wise men didn't come till later, maybe much later. <coughs> so that night, these few humble shepherds come in and they said, man, we've seen a vision. Joseph and Mary would understand that because they also had visitations earlier. And so it's God making known the Word became flesh. It's what had been anticipated since before the creation of the world. And especially from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and brought sin into the world. Sin and death and pain and suffering and sorrow. And the longing of people, the expectation, the prophecies, was that there would be a time when God would act decisively on our behalf because we had become enslaved to the sin within our own hearts. Every one of us. Enslaved to the sin within our own hearts and in bondage. And there was nothing we could do to break that. 
All of our good intentions, all of our goodwill, all of our strength, all of our willpower could not break or change that in any way. So John chapter 1, he tells us what's going on. He's saying he, Jesus came as the light of the world and the world didn't receive him. He came to that which he created. He came to the people of God and they did not know him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not automatic. Just because you know these things doesn't mean that it's a reality in our hearts or has changed our lives in any way. It's more than a mental assent. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is what Jesus is going to talk to Nicodemus about, about being born again. Um, it's more than a physical birth. It's a spiritual event. And it's very similar to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ conceived by the Holy Spirit. There was no man involved here. This is not an act of man. This is an act of God. It's a miracle. And he says that if we receive him into our hearts, God works a similar miracle in your heart and mind. He creates a capacity to receive and know Jesus Christ as Lord. And that's what changes us. Not our willpower, not our abilities, not our goodness. It's an act of God, a creative act of God to set things right. So Jesus, the Word became flesh that you and I might be born of the Spirit. Jesus became flesh, born of the flesh, so that you and I can be born of the Spirit. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about it and he's trying to explain it to him. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? No, he can't. But the Spirit can go deep within your heart and create something that was not there before. So that's why Jesus likens it to being born. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so that's why Jesus has come. Born of the Spirit in Mary, that he might be born of the Spirit in your heart and mine, to those who will receive him. And when that happens, Jesus becomes for you and for me, the light of the world. You know, it's an amazing thing that when Jesus lived his earthly life and walked the earth, people looked at him and they didn't see anything different than you or I. You know, you walk, walk into, into the villages or in the towns, especially uh, the big cities uh, during the holidays and stuff, and you're just, there's just this press of people. I wonder what kind of people we pass and don't even recognize them. 
prophets of God, uh, spirit-filled people, people who are warriors in prayer, people who nobody in the world will ever know their name, but they're important and well-known to God. And we pass them by without acknowledging or knowing. And unless God shows us, gives us a word of knowledge or discernment, we won't. But oftentimes, and you've had this experience, if Christ is in your heart, you'll meet a perfect stranger, and there's a bond in the Spirit that's there because they're your brother or your sister in Christ. And you know it. So Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 4. He's wanting us to understand, and he's wanting the Galatians, the Gentile Christians, to understand He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born in that stable to redeem you and I, that we might receive inheritance, God's children. Because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What are you going to inherit? The kingdom. God's kingdom. And everything that that means. And it's not just for the future. We should be living as kingdom people right now. If Christ is in your heart and Jesus is Lord, that means he is controlling and ruling your life. If we say that we're Christians and we go ahead and do our own thing and live our own, the way that we choose to live, that's a lie. So if Jesus is Lord, then we have the witness of the Spirit because Jesus cries out to his Father, Abba, Father. And he still does that. He does that in your heart and in your life. And so we know that we are children of God because we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. So when God comes into the world, it forces people into making a choice. And people who try to have one foot in the, in the church or in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world, the, word, the scriptures has a, a word for that. It, uh, James talks about it being double-minded. And David in the Old Testament prays about that. And he's praying for singleness of heart. And what it means, this word double-minded, it literally means two-souled. We become a divided person within. And so that's why we're miserable. We can't be a good Christian while we're living in the world. We can't even be a good sinner if we're trying to to be in in the Lord. So we lose both ways. And there's this war that's going on and there's no peace and there's no security and there's no hope. And people die because of lack of hope. And so what Christ has done is he's come and saying, uh, you don't have to be double-minded anymore. And if we let Christ rule in our heart the way he's supposed to, then we become his children. Paul says it a little more in depth in Romans chapter 8. And this is what he says there, starting with verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And again, that's the generic term. It's not politically correct anymore. But what he's saying is all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons or children by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so he's brought to us so that we can be single-minded, whole, at peace. In the Old Testament, Isaiah saw that this was coming, and he was writing in the, the political, economic, and social events of his day. They were going through a political and economic crisis. They were being attacked. It was a time of warfare. And it was a, uh, they were engaged in a war that they could not win, and they knew they could not win. They were outgunned, outclassed, outmaneuvered, and they didn't have the funds, the resources. They couldn't even put the, the horses, men on the horses if they had the horses, and they didn't have those either. So they knew they were in desperate condition. And God's word to them was, you trust God or die. Maybe our faith would be a little stronger if that were our options. But if you stop and think about it, that is our option. Trust God or die. You could walk in the light or you can choose to live in darkness with all the fear that goes with that. So God speaks in that desperate situation and he calls them out of darkness into light. And he talks about the people in that desperate situation if they don't have the testimony of God in their heart, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's pretty grim. And many people lived in that kind of a situation because with these armies, they were brutal back then, more brutal than they are today unless you live in Africa or one of those places. Um, there, they, there, is, there are no rules of engagement there and there is no Geneva Convention there. And they are, um, they are absolutely brutal with each other. No holds barred for anyone. Doesn't matter if you're old, doesn't matter if you're a newborn baby or not even born yet. Um, it's not a, a pleasant thing to think about. And there are people who are going through that, living in that situation today as we speak. And so in that situation, there's this fear and despair and hopelessness. And that's where the good news of God comes in. There will be no gloom for who, her who was in anguish in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. We call that the land of Galilee in the New Testament. Same area that he's talking about. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea 
the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. God's taken off the yoke of burden and the staff, the rod of the oppressor. And what is this great light? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And so God announces that uh, through the angels to the shepherds. And that is affirmed um, about a month or so later by Simeon and Anna in the temple when they go to purify through the purification rites for Mary. Luke gives us the positive part. He gives us the affirmative part. The shepherds, uh, the witness of Simeon and Anna, uh, the going through the processes of being a good Orthodox Jew, different things you have to do for the child, different things you have to do for the, for the woman. And it's a celebratory, positive thing. Matthew gives the other side as well. So in the context there, and the affirmation, remember, that the angels proclaim to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest heavens on earth, peace, goodwill among men of goodwill. Peace among men of goodwill. So why is there no peace in the world today? Peace among men of goodwill. What's the motive? Where are they coming from? If there's not goodwill, there will be no peace. So after a lengthy time, maybe upward of two years, these very wealthy, powerful, influential men show up. They're not sure how many. Um, We've focused in on three because of uh, the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But in the Middle Ages, they had as many as 12. So they don't know how many wise men there were. But this group of men, powerful magi from the east, came. And they go to the capital city. They go to Herod the Great's palace. This guy, um, he had made Israel very great. uh, Big projects, beautified the place. Beautiful, beautiful buildings. uh, Economically strong. And he was insane. At the end of his life, he was genuinely insane. He had a um, venereal disease that was destroying his body parts, and he was in great pain and suffering, and he became very paranoid. He ends up killing his wife, his mother-in-law. He killed three of his sons um, because he was afraid they were going to take his throne. And this insane man... When these men came and said, we saw a star, there is a baby that's born here or close to here. He's the king that's been foretold. And the evil spirit in this man understood the significance of the coming of this child in ways which no one else did. He saw it that this, is, this child is a genuine threat to everything I am and everything I stand for because he was wicked and evil. And he was right. 
Jesus came to destroy the works of wickedness. And the ones who recognized Jesus first, remember as you read through the gospel, were all the demons. They knew who he was and they knew why he had come and it scared them to death. And when they saw him, they ran up and fell at his feet where they belong and where they will stay when Jesus returns. Herod saw it and he knew it and he perceived the threat. And so the message of God towards earth is peace and the the response of earth is death and violence and destruction. Kill it. Wipe out that light. Remember what John said? In him was life and that life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But they tried. And they're still trying today. And that effort, that war, is going on in your heart and mine as well. So we, in our own hearts, and our own thinking, we can be overcome with the darkness. But the light of life in Christ Jesus is available for those who will receive it. That's the message. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why Jesus has come. The baby in the manger... Paul tells us in Philippians, it was God in the flesh. All the deity, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. And he emptied himself and came down in weakness and vulnerability in the form of a newborn baby. And there's, there's not many more helpless things than a human newborn baby. They can't do anything for themselves. Very, very vulnerable. People don't want to get close to other people because they don't want to be vulnerable. We're afraid. We're afraid people will abuse us or take advantage of us or manipulate you or us. And there are many people who will do exactly that. It's a genuine fear. So every time you enter into a relationship of any kind, you're a risk taker because you're not sure how that's going to be received. I think that's one of the reasons people don't want to get married. They don't want the commitment. They're afraid uh, to take that risk, to become vulnerable to the other person in that way. In Christ, that's done away with. And Jesus comes in weakness and in vulnerability. Now that went on all through Jesus' life as he was growing up. We know about the temptations in the wilderness. That's one expression of it. But we come to this verse in Luke chapter 22. Now you remember one of the key words in the Gospel of John, and he talks about it over and over again, is Jesus' hour. My hour has not yet come. Um, And so at the wedding feast in Cana, Mary says, they're out of wine. It's an embarrassing social problem here. Jesus said, woman, what have I got to do with you? Uh, My hour's not here yet. They tried to kill Jesus a couple of times, and he just walked through because his hour had not yet come. And the hour he's talking about is the hour of his death, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. 
Now, in Luke chapter 22, we get a little different picture. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've come from the upper room. He's asked the disciples to watch and pray with him, and they've fallen asleep. And he's woken them up and asked them again, and he did this three times, and each time they slept. So the third time that he woke them up, in verse 47, while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, give him the kiss of peace, the kiss of friendship, the kiss that you give your relatives. And Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss in the cloak of friendship? How do you betray him? Well, I don't want to say anything because uh, people might laugh at me. So, surely you're a Christian. Nah, no, I don't. No. Like Peter. When those who were around him saw what would follow, they knew they, these guys came with, with torches and swords and spears. They knew what was coming. These were soldiers. These were part of the guard. They knew why they were there. The disciples didn't need anybody to tell them. When they saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them didn't wait for an answer. Took his sword and struck the high priest and cut off his right ear. Tells us later on his name was Malchus. They know the man. Malchus. Peter tried to kill him. He tried to cut his head off. And the man ducked and he cut his ear off. Jesus said, no more of this, and it stopped. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Can you imagine that? The guards are coming to arrest him, to torture him, to kill him, and he's still healing the men who are doing that to him. What's amazing to me is that this group arrested him anyway. They didn't care about the miracle. They didn't care about this man. There was a hatred and a violence there that was greater. How do you and I respond to the miracles of God that we see in our lives? They're there. We have some sitting here this morning that are our miracles, answers to prayer. How do we respond to that? Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple for a whole week, you did not lay hands on me. Listen what he says next. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. He came as a light of the world and the light could not overcome it, but they tried. This is the power, their hour, the hour of darkness where they're going to kill, crucify, put to death and put into a tomb with a stone uh, uh, across the entrance, a seal and an armed guard outside to deal with this man. They were so afraid and hated him so much. 
It was their hour and the power of darkness. This was the greatest thing that evil could do to try to kill God. You know, there was a theological thing uh, years ago. Some of you may be old enough to remember the death of God thing. You know, well, that wasn't new. They tried it right here. And they can write all the books they want to, but the, the tomb is still empty. The stone's been rolled away. Not because he needed it to get out, because he could appear anytime he wanted to. He appeared a couple of days later in a locked room. He just showed up. There he was. So he didn't need the stone rolled away to get out. He rolled the stone away so that you and I could see that it's empty. And because it's empty, what it means is he has the power of death and life. And he's risen again and he is stronger than death. And what it means, bottom line, if you accept Christ and the sacrifice he paid, your sins have been forgiven. They are done away with and gone. The only thing that died that day was your sin. The moment you accept Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. The darkness tried to overcome it. They were not able. So Paul tells us as the church, he says in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, look, um, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a physical battle that we are in. You can't fight it with weapons, traditional weapons of war. They're useless. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle, and they will use people like Herod the Great to try to kill the baby. They'll use people like Pontius Pilate or Caiaphas to try to kill Jesus himself. And they will succeed in killing the body. But the spirit, they cannot touch. And so it's a spiritual battle. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 1, sorry, verse 22 through 25... says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he goes on and he continues... He's talking about wisdom because that was what the Greeks really admired. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In Colossians it says that through the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus triumphed over these rulers of darkness and made an open spectacle of them triumphing over over them through the cross and all the power and might of Rome and all the powers of the spirits in earth and in the heavenly places were absolutely powerless to prevent the resurrection and he got up to show how weak 
and it's significant they really were. Light is stronger than the darkness. Life is stronger than death. That's the purpose and the meaning of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we